This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Konnichiwa, amigos. Today we have Donald Hoffman on the show uh, for those of you guys that aren't familiar with Donald, he is a professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, a cognitive psychologist, uh, author, speaker. If you guys haven't checked out his TED Talk, uh, Do We See Reality As It Is? I highly recommend it. And we get to talk about some of the probably trippiest things I've ever got a chance to talk with a guest about, which is... The fact that we don't see reality as it is and the possibilities of the fact that we might be living in a simulation. We also got to go over psychedelics and how that could alter the realities that we live in, the definition of being conscientious, sorry, conscious and what consciousness means and whether there's an afterlife and how that ties into the spiritual beliefs that a lot of people have been taught to believe. So it gets deep, guys. This is our longest conversation that I've ever had on Growth Minds with a guest. It ran two hours long, and uh, I would grab a cup of tea, a cup of coffee. Some of you guys may want to smoke some weed and dig into this conversation with Donald Hoffman. Donald Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. Excited to have you on. A little bit nerve-wracking just based on some of the research that I've done about how deep you go into around, you know, the space-time and consciousness and all these things that probably a lot of people think about but haven't really conceptualized as much as you have. Um, You know, how, how does one even start this pathway of digging into something as you know probably as 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 profound as sharing with the people that reality is not what it seems like i mean where do you even originate that idea and how do you decide to go into this path right so it's i think most of us just assume that when i look at an apple and i see the red color and the apple shape and and so forth that uh you know i'm saying the truth that there really is an apple that exists and it would exist even if i weren't looking and you know we don't believe that we're seeing all of the truth but that we see those aspects of reality that yeah we need to survive and so and you know if i look up at the moon and you look up at the moon we're we're looking at something that existed long before we ever looked and will exist long after we're dead, and we're we're seeing a reality. Um, not all of it again, but 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 a, a genuine reality. The shape is right, the color is right, and, and and so forth that we're seeing. And the intuition that most of us would have, if you know, if we have 
a little bit of scientific background, maybe about evolution and so forth. It, an argument might be that, you know, look, um, if you if you see the truth, if you see reality as it is, at least those aspects of reality that you need, then you're going to be more fit than those who don't see those aspects of reality. And so, you know, in each generation, those who saw reality a little bit more accurately in the ways that were needed probably, you know, were more, more successful at feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. You know, the, the big, important you know, a- actions of life. And so they were more likely to pass on their genes that code for more accurate perceptions. And and so, uh, you know, based on that kind of intuitive logic, it, it, it makes sense that after, you know, thousands of generations of that, we've been really shaped to see truths, the, the truths that we need. And, and so... Uh, you know, that's an intuitive um, attitude that a lot of people would have. And in fact, it's the attitude that most uh, scientists, I mean, who are actually experts in evolutionary theory. Um, you know, I mean, what I've outlined there is, you know, an informal statement of uh, the kinds of arguments that they will give formally, that evolution has shaped us to see reality as it is, because that will make us more fit, you know, more able to, you know, compete in feeding, fighting, fleeing and, and mating. And the idea is that we, the idea is, is it's important for survival because if we thought we looked at a rock, oh, so we looked at a tiger, let's say, and we thought it was a rock, uh, it just would mean that we would we were dead, basically. Right, because you might want to pick up a rock and throw it, but if you try to pick up a tiger and throw it, you might have something else coming at you. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so so absolutely, that, and that's you know it, it it makes sense, and you might go. That's so obvious. This, you know, why think about it any further? It's just obviously true that you know we had to be shaped to see the truth. Not, of course, no one thinks we see all of the truth, but but those mm-hmm. truths that we need for our species to to survive. Well, so I decided uh, now, you know, fourteen, fifteen years ago, to really look at that carefully. Right, and by that I mean we all have an intuitive notion about evolution, but it turns out that. That intuition has been turned into mathematics. Uh, a guy named John Maynard Smith, a, a British mathematician in the 1970s, used something called game theory, uh, the mathematics of game theory, um, wedded that with evolutionary theory and came up with evolutionary game theory. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that we can actually um, not run simulations of evolution um, and also prove theorems about evolution by natural selection. And so I, I got a couple of graduate students who wanted to get their PhDs um, interested in this, and they ran simulations. Uh, and the simulations suggested that organisms that saw reality as it is could never outcompete organisms that saw none of reality, organisms of equal complexity that saw none of reality and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs, right, to the, the, the consequences of their actions. And so doing those simulations gave us some insight into why that was the case. Um, there, <clears throat> part of the reason is that um, it takes a lot of time and energy to compute the truth. And um, if you don't compute the truth, you don't have to waste that time and energy. But even more deeply, it was that fitness payoffs, the things that actually govern whether you survive or not, seemed to be erasing information about the structure of the world. 
So I went to a mathematician, Chetan Prakash, you know, with the simulations, the results, and the ideas. And, and I, I proposed a couple ideas about theorems that, that, that might be true based on the simulations. And so he's the real mathematician. I'm not, but I knew enough math to get into trouble and not enough to get out of trouble. But he knew enough to actually prove a couple really important theorems. And so the bottom line is this. It's a theorem of evolution by natural selection that the probability is precisely zero that any structure that you perceive, whether it's the structure of shapes or colors, um, any structure of your perceptions, the probability is zero that that structure that you perceive um, in any way represents a structure of objective reality. So whatever whatever objective reality is, you know. So for for now, I, I don't know what objective reality is, right? But but suppose there is an objective reality that's got some structure. What is the probability that natural selection would shape our sensory systems or any organism's sensory systems to tell some truths about that structure, the truths that that organism might need? And the answer is the probability is precisely zero, mathematically zero. So so that's the stunning results. So evolution is not a hand wave. It's not, you know, you know, I have my opinion about it. You have your opinion about it. No, it's a mathematical theorem. And and so it's a a mathematical theory. And so, you know, we can prove theorems. And so that's, that's the remarkable theorem. And so it, it raises an obvious question, right? You know, you know, how in the world is it, is perception going to help us stay alive? If it's not showing us the truth about the world, right? And then, you know, how could that be? You know, this seems mm-hmm. so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And, and the answer, I think, is perhaps best understood by a metaphor. And uh, there's a couple of metaphors, I think, that are helpful. One is if you're using a, a computer with a Windows desktop, right? And you have, a, you have nice little icons on your desktop and so forth for files or images or whatever it is that you're, you're working with. <clears throat> um you know that if, if you have this blue rectangular icon in the middle of your desktop for, say, a book that you're writing um, or an article that you're writing, the article itself in your computer is not blue and rectangular and in the middle of the computer, even though the icon on your desktop is blue and rectangular in the middle of your desktop. And, and in that metaphor, the reality is like all these voltages and magnetic fields and you know circuits inside this computer that, that you may or may not even know about, or you may have no expertise in it. And what you see is not circuits and software. You just see eye candy, simple eye candy that lets you control all those circuits without even understanding them at all, right? And, and the point of a user interface is to let you control reality without even knowing what the reality is. Most people have no idea about, <laughs> you know, digital circuits and, and, and how they work mm-hmm. and for good reason right it's just really really complicated and, and and in fact if you had to toggle voltages like to write an email right no one would ever hear from you so so the point is that you can see that knowing the truth being forced to deal with reality may not be a help it could be a hindrance if I said the only way that you can send me an email is by toggling voltages, well, good luck. It's not going to happen. But if I give you a nice, simple user interface, then it's easy, and you don't have to know anything about reality. And that's what evolution did. What these theorems are telling us is that the selection pressures from evolution are uniformly against 
forcing us to see the voltages and forcing us to toggle the voltages of reality, whatever they, they might be. Instead, it's giving this a user interface with simple eye candy and ear candy and touch candy. Uh, you know, all of our senses are just user interfaces, not the truth. Not to, so it's not just vision, it's all senses and for all organisms, not just humans. This is a universal theorem for all sensory systems of all organisms. We've all been shaped to have you know, specific user interfaces that let us survive in our niche. So it's, it's another metaphor would be like if you're playing a, you know, a virtual reality video game, say a virtual reality version of something like Grand Theft Auto. Um, so you see a, you know, a virtual Mustang you know, a red Mustang or a, a, a green Ferrari or something like that. You see your virtual steering wheel and so forth. And so you have all this nice eye candy that lets you play the game. And if you're really good at that, at that game, then you can beat other people. But you can ask, you know, suppose someone says, well, I'm going to play the game by toggling voltages in the, in the supercomputer. Well, good luck. I mean, I'm going to be able to change lots of voltages in real time by just turning my steering wheel. You're going to have to toggle them one at a time. You have to know what you're doing, too. So, so good luck. You're, you're going to, even though you know the truth, you're not going to win the game. And that's sort yeah. of what evolution has done is given us the tools to win the game. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, a virtual reality headset. So space time and objects are like a VR headset that lets us play the game of life and, and, and win or, or not. I mean, you know, 99% of all species that have ever existed are extinct. So, so eventually we all lose. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that. So uh, I, I like the example of the virtual reality and the fact, you know, Grand Theft Auto is probably one where people, a lot, a lot of people know of where they can control where the character goes, what they see. And those are like visual elements, you know, I guess, kinetic movements and stuff like that. Whereas like this cup or this computer in front of me or this camera in front of me, these are, there's, there's more layers to it, right? There's, there's things I can smell this coffee there's a sensory, uh, there's an additional sensory. I can touch it. I can feel it. Um, I can see it from different angles. It, it seems to me, at least, this seems to be objectively, uh, if that's the right definition, real as I'm seeing it now than a virtual reality game. So I, I guess my question is what we're seeing, if what you're seeing right now is what we're seeing today is not the truth or what we're actually seeing is, 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 is not, is false. You know, how false is it? How, how close are we to true reality? Are we actually seeing? Well, the answer is going, so I'm, I should say how I'm thinking about this whole thing as a scientist, right? Did, um, ultimately we, I, I don't know. I don't know anything, right? I, I mean, I, we have theories, Scientists have theories, and we can tell you what our theories mean. And so what we do is we tell you what the best current theories that scientists have mean. So evolution by natural selection is one of our best current theories, right? Well, there's no better theory to explain lots of biological phenomena. It's truly a powerful theory. It's got its own limitations, but we don't have anything better. And so, so my answer to your question is using evolutionary theory, the answer is very, very clear. That theory says that no aspect of our perceptions reveals anything about objective reality. None at all. Now, I'm not saying that evolutionary theory is correct. I'm, I'm just saying we don't have a better theory, and that's what that theory entails. Now, as a scientist, um, my attitude is once I, 
what we're trying to do is really take our best scientific theories, push them to their limits, and find out where they break. And if we can break a theory, that's time to break out, you break out the champagne because now you're going now you're ready to take the next step. And and by analyzing how the theory you know breaks down or, or gives you conclusions that you think might not be right, then that might give you hints about how to take the next step. Right. So our best theories in science will tell us where they stop. They they can go this far and no farther. But they're they can't tell us what we need to do next. Right. They're, you know, they, they just can't tell you what the next step. So that's where we need scientific creativity. So so when I say in answer to your question that that um, evolutionary theory tells us that none of our perceptions in any aspect tell us anything about objective reality. We can I can look at that and say, OK, that's what the theory of evolution by natural selection entails. Um and there's a couple things I can do about it, a couple reactions I can have to that. So one reaction might be this. There's a lot more to evolution than natural selection, right? So there are there's genetic drift, right? There's just random drift of, of genes. There's things called pleiotropy and and, um, and, and and so linkage. And so there's lots of things that go on in, in evolution besides natural selection. And there are some evolutionary biologists who think that natural selection is a, a fairly minor aspect of, of, of evolution. What are some of those? Just Can we just go very briefly into some of the, maybe the other two main ones other than natural selection well, that so people think about? The big one would be like genetic drift. That, that and, and this is a debate, by the way. This is not settled. Experts in the field have differing opinions, but there are some who will say that natural selection plays a really minor role in the, um, the current set of genes that we have. It's mostly genetic drift. Uh, in other words, there's just ran, you, random things happen to your genes and they just get passed on randomly without much selection effect on them. So, and, and for most, most people will say there is some effect of genetic drift. And, and so you have, um, the adaptationists who think that there's a lot of emphasis on natural selection and those who think that no, they're, they're not adaptationists. They think natural selection is fairly minor. And so they'll say, you know, genetic drift plays a bigger role. Um, linkage is that you know, certain genes um, are sort of together on chromosomes. And so if one gets passed on, the other is likely to get passed on as well. So you get, you know, they, they hitchhike along together. And so you get effects like that that affect your your body and, and your fitness. That's, that's linked. What's an example of that? Um, uh, well, well, there's tons of examples where, well, I'll put it this way. Every gene in your chromosome is next to other genes, right? The, the, you, know, you, have, you have 26 chromosomes. I'm sorry, 20, 23 chromosomes, and, and um, um, the, the, the genes for, for eye color, for example, will be next to other genes that may be code for something else, you know, something other aspect of your body. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anytime a particular part of, of a chromosome gets copied, nearby parts will, will likely be, get copied with, with fractions or the totality of other genes. And so that's, that's called linkage. Uh, and pleiotropy is the the idea that that a, a given gene might have multiple effects. In, in fact, most genes it's really complicated. Genes have many many different effects, and so selection pressures are 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 again 
complicated at, at best, you know, and, and hard to understand. It's, it's much like, you know, neural networks. You don't know what any particular node is doing in terms of the whole processing of the whole net network. It's not just doing one thing. It's it's contributing to a wide variety of variables. Right. right. So it may be that genes are more like, you know, top level, like nodes in a neural network. They have lots of different uh, effects. So, so my response on that one is that, and by the way, that's a response that's been given to me by, by um, people who are experts in, in, in biology, is that it's absolutely true that um, natural selection may be, for all I know, a minor part of evolution. I mean, and maybe, you know, genetic drift, linkage, pleiotropy, and other things, um, you know, also constraints from just physics and chemistry may, may play big, big roles in, in, in it. But, but here's the point. When we talk about why our perceptions might be true, it's because truer perceptions will make us more fit. And that's a natural selection argument. No one says that genetic drift will make you see the truth. It couldn't. No one says that linkage or pleiotropy will make you see the truth. I mean, that you have some heavy lifting to do to make a story that shows how linkage and pleiotropy are going to make you see the truth. And so, so what I focused on when, with my students and, and uh, Chaitan Prakash, my collaborator, um, is that one aspect of evolution that people do point to when they say we've been shaped to see the truth, namely natural selection. And evolutionary game theory allows me to focus on that one aspect quite clearly and see what it says. And it says the probability is zero, that we've been shaped to see the truth. Now, you, you did point out in your question that um, – we deeply believe that what we're seeing is the truth, right? The, with the shape, the smell, the color, it all feels very, very compelling to us. And it absolutely, um, it turns out that we're shaped to believe that very early on in life, about the time you're four months of age, you get what's called object permanence. This was first um, discussed by the... Um, developmental psychologist uh, uh, Piaget. He thought it was around 18 months. And he said before 18 months of age, a child, um, you, you look at a, a baby doll and the baby doll exists for you as long as you're looking at it. But when you look away, you cease to believe that it exists. You, 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 and, and one bit of evidence that he'd give for it would be you, you show a baby doll to uh, a baby and they play with it. Now, you while they're watching, you put the, the doll behind a pillow and they proceed to do something else. They, but after 18 months, uh, you put the doll behind a pillow and then they go behind the pillow to get the doll. Right. They, they know that even though they can't see the doll, the doll still exists. That's what we call that object permanence. And later experiments um, – we're more careful, you know, we're more sensitive to what you know, children can really understand. And they found that even at about four, mo four months of age, um, we get object permanence. So, so think about it from this, this point of view. We all deeply believe in object permanence. Why? Because when we were four months of old, four months of age, we were not in any position to argue. Evolution programmed us to believe that. And so as adults, we've, we've, that's the water we swim in. From the time we're four months of age, we've just been programmed to believe our interface. And so that's why it's so hard for us to let go. It's not because there are rational arguments that we've 
sat down and looked at and go, oh, wow, yeah, that's a proof that objects really do exist. When uh, No, it's because we've believed that since before we could even argue against it. That's just the way we see the world. So that's why this is so counterintuitive to us, not because we've had rational arguments that have proved to us that objects don't exist or objects do exist when we don't perceive them, but rather that uh, evolution just programmed us to believe it because, you know, from, from the evolutionary point of view, there's no percentage in you not believing your, your perceptions, just believe them. So you're programmed to believe them, you know, and so that's why it's so hard for us intuitively to to grasp this. Now I'm looking for a, a deeper theory. Um, in which evolution would come out as a special case. And maybe for a deeper theory of objective reality, um, first I can show that the dynamics of this deeper theory looks like evolution by natural selection in our interface so that I can get back. So I'm not going to, right, when you make a new step beyond the current science, you do not throw away your previous theories. For example, when we went from Newton physics, Newtonian physics to relativity, we're not throwing away Newton. We're, we're just understanding Newton in a, in a broader context, right? And, and we still use Newton, and we understand what's so beautiful about Newton's theory. And we still use Newton's equations for a lot of everyday work. It's really important. So even though we now understand that there's a much deeper notion of space and time, namely Einstein's theory of special relativity and general relativity, nevertheless, we don't throw away Newton. And, and that's the spirit in which we make new steps in, 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 um, in our theories. Now, of course, if a theory is just flat out, stupid we, we throw it away but most yeah i'm not a, I, i'm not thinking that evolution by natural selection is flat out stupid by any means so what mm-hmm. uh, whatever deeper theory i want to propose i better show how when i project that back into our user interface it looks like evolution by natural selection but maybe this deeper theory would make it possible for us to at least see some or perceive some truths of objective reality so that's that but that's Sort of the important reason to to say that is to just give a feel for how science works, that we take our best theories, not as the gospel, just as the best theories that we have so far, and we use them to solve problems. We try to find their limits. We try to break them. And when we do break them, we try to figure out, we do, you know, a a postmortem to figure out what's wrong. Yeah. Then try to take the next step. Where now you have to make a creative leap. You know, the theory may give you ideas about where to go next, but you really have to be taking a creative leap. You know, Einstein took a huge creative leap beyond Newton, right? He said, the speed of light is universal. That's huge. You, know, you and I, no matter how fast you're going, light will always go away from you at the speed of light. That's, that's crazy, right? From a Newtonian point of view, that's, that, you know, what, what is he smoking, right? It's just, just crazy. But, but he took that leap, and it worked. Um, and so that's what we will need to do, uh, you know, to have a, 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 a leap that looks crazy, perhaps, in the current scientific framework, but that gives us back the current scientific framework. You know, like Newton, you can show that in some sense you get back Newton as an approximation, approximation to Einstein's theory when the speed of light is taken to go to infinity, right? Where speed of light is not finite, but it goes to infinity, then you get something that looks like Newton coming out of, out of Einstein. So you can see how they're related. And so, so maybe there's a way to rescue the idea that we perceive some truths if we can come up with a deeper theory and show how evolution by natural selection is just a, a special case of this deeper theory. 
Right, right. And I think it's important to get give people an idea of how you as a scientist approach your level of thinking so that they don't think you're just putting out random stuff. There's a system right. to and a formula in terms of the way you're formulating this. And I guess ultimately you are looking for ways to debunk this this idea that you guys may have, which would be able to poke holes and, and that would allow you guys to go back to the table of, of, of rethinking that. This is, so you, basically what you're saying is like, you're, you're making this thesis that natural selection is a primary uh, way that we have evolved, like I guess the Darwinian. Um, and based on that information, you're, you're, you're making these claims. But I guess this whole thing could be thrown out the door if natural selection turns out not to be the main thing that has helped us evolve over time. Is that, is that right? That's right. In, in the following sense that um, what, what, what seems to be coming out of this theorem from natural selection is that our perceptions evolved to be a user interface, to be a virtual reality headset. That seems to be what it's telling us. And so if that's what it's telling us, then it's saying that what you're seeing isn't the truth. It's just a headset. And it can't tell us what's beyond the headset. That's the, that's the point. So evolution can't tell us what's beyond the headset. It, it, it can just tell us, you thought you were, you know, when you look at the moon, you thought you were seeing objective reality. When you look around and you see space and time, perceive things in space and time, you thought that space and time were the final nature of reality. No, it's just the format of your headset. So it's, it's the, the theory, that's, that's an incredibly powerful insight that the theory gives us, right? It's incredibly powerful. But just telling you that you have headset on doesn't tell you what's on the other side of the headset. Now, so that's where you're right. We have to take, as a scientist, we'll have to then take a creative leap, but it's going to have to, whatever the leap is, it's going to have to explain the origin of the headset, the data structure of the headset, what's going on outside the headset, and then how that what's going on outside the headset projects into the headset and why and, and when I do that projection it better be mathematically precise first so uh, no hand wave a mathematical model of what's outside space-time headset mathematical model of how it projects into the headset and then I better show that it looks like evolution by natural selection I better get back evolutionary theory as the headset version of what's going on outside the headset in fact all of current science, so general relativity, the theory of gravity, quantum field theory, the theory of, of the quantum. The, these pillars of science, from this point of view, are explorations of our headset. Science, 99.99% of all science, has only been a study of the structure and function of our headset. We, science has not yet taken a step outside the headset. Now, you might say, look, this is fine for a cognitive scientist to be saying this kind of stuff about evolution and, and space and time is not fundamental. But look, he's not a physicist. I mean, you get any real physicist on here, he's going to tell you that this, this is nonsense. Of course, space and time is fundamental. Well, it turns out that the physicists themselves have come to the same conclusion – that space-time is not fundamental for very, very different reasons than the evolutionary reason that I've, that I've given. 
they're coming. So what they're saying, and this is the, the catchphrase that they'll use, space-time is doomed. So if you just Google space-time is doomed, you can find lots of videos where the physicists themselves will tell you, like Nima Arkani Hamed at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, will tell you precisely why. They, they now understand that space-time has had a good run. It's been assumed to be fundamental since at least Newton for many, many centuries, but it's over. There's got to be, you know, space-time has to be only an approximate concept. There's got to be some deeper aspect of reality that's utterly beyond space and time, both. And yeah. space and time have to emerge from that deeper thing. What, what Nima, the physicist Nima R. Kani Hamed is proposing is something called cosmological polytopes and amplitudehedron. So, so there are actually mathematical structures that, I'm just giving you the names. We won't go into the details, but these are just the names of, of the structures they're finding. There's no space-time. There's no quantum theory. There are no Hilbert spaces, but they're showing how space-time and quantum mechanics can arise as approximations to these. So, so what, what's so we're getting it from all of our big theories: evolution by natural selection, quantum field theory, theory of gravity, Einstein's theory of gravity. They're all telling us that space-time is not fundamental. It's just a data structure. There's there's something deeper. And none of the theories can tell us what's the deeper thing. And and the physicist, like what, what Nima is doing is he's he, he's going, you know, we don't know what the nature of reality is beyond space and time. What, what he's doing is looking for mathematical structures that can then project back in and give us what we see in space-time. But but and and so he's being guided by the mathematics to try to find these structures. But what is that realm about? No idea. I mean, why does it? Why does this realm exist? No, no idea. And so, mm-hmm. so so that's that's the state of play, um, which is really quite exciting. I mean, you might think, well, you know, scientists must be throwing up their hands in despair and going, oh, this is terrible, terrible. Everything that we believe is false. No, that the young scientists are going fabulous. Because we, we want to explore further. We want to discover new stuff. And, you know, just because for centuries people believed in space-time doesn't mean it's right. And if we can find out that it's, there's something deeper, it's just a headset, okay, well, let's go find out what's beyond the headset. So there's a lot, there's a lot of, of excitement in physics. And I think hopefully among biologists, um, the stuff I'm doing is fairly new. So hopefully among cognitive scientists and biologists to go beyond the headset. Yeah, no, it must open up a whole new realm now for young and up and coming scientists to really rethink a lot of the previous theories that have been put out there. And it, I guess it allows them to really uh, have a different perspective uh, because of that. Whether they n- will figure out the answer or not, just to be able to rethink and hopefully it'll get them in an opportunity to, to rethink other things that perhaps were not questioned, uh, you know, as much. Um, going back to the, the, I guess the perception of, of reality, you know, talking about if we have evolved through natural selection because it helped us survive. And obviously back in the day, every little bit helped because a tiger could get us, uh, a, a bear could find us and, and hunt us down in the forest. Another tribe could come grab us into a different tribe. Whereas now today we live in a world that isn't really struggling, particularly people that are in developed nations. We have more food than we need, lights, energy, happiness, whatever it is. We're not struggling per se in the traditional sense. So 
taking this into account of natural selection, how does this change the accuracy of our perception of reality moving forward if we were to go back, uh, go forward uh, generations and generations that don't have to struggle as much to survive? Right. So from this new perspective, I would say it's a, it's a great question. And the answer intuitively would be like this. Think about someone who just starts to play Grand Theft Auto for the first time. They make lots of mistakes. They die. They, they, they're very frustrated. Uh, and what happens is you, as you get more and more experience with your interface, you begin to understand your interface better. You understand the tricks about how to use your interface effectively. And that's what our species has done. And, and science has been a, a huge tool. We, we discovered this amazing fact about our universe that using mathematical models really is helpful in understanding how to manipulate space and time and objects and so forth. I mean, it's, you, you write down some equations on a piece of paper, like, so for example, in the 1800s, Faraday was doing all these experiments with magnets and wires and twitching frog legs, electricity and magnetism, did tons of experiments. And Michael Faraday comes along and looks at his experiments and goes, I can write down some equations for that. And he writes down, you know, uh, Maxwell's equations. So, so, so Maxwell writes down Maxwell's equations for Faraday's work. And um, Maxwell's equations turn out to be why you and I can talk today via Skype from halfway around the world. Those, mm -hmm. the, those equations uh, gave us new, a new understanding of our user interface that allows us to go to the next level of the game in, in some sense, right? To play the game and not die. So, so from this point of view, you can see it just because we're, we've gotten better and better um, at staying alive and medicine and, and electronics and so forth doesn't mean we're seeing the truth. From this point of view, we're just getting better at using our interface. It's like a person who was a neophyte at Grand Theft Auto and has now become a pro at Grand Theft Auto, but has no idea about the circuits and software inside, right? He doesn't have to be a computer programmer to be a great player of the game. And that's the point. Being great players of the game of life does not mean that we know what's going on in reality. Gotcha. And is this mostly our, is this heavily weighed on our visual sensories, meaning or is it possible that our sense of smell, hearing, touch, taste, things around that that doesn't involve our visual perceptions could be more in touch with the real truth of reality than our visual sensories? Well, yeah, we might. I think that's a great question because we intuitively believe that, you know, even if my eyes are fooling me, I can touch something, right? So... And my 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 touch surely will not mislead me. Um, so maybe you know the apple doesn't exist. I might think the apple doesn't exist when I don't look. But if I close my eyes and reach out, I can still grab it and touch it with my hand and, and confirm that the apple really does exist. And it's a clear implication of this theorem from natural selection. Even touch is just a user interface. It's all virtual. Um, and there are. For those who, who want some kind of help with that, uh, to understand, there's um, Phantom Limb 
phenomena. If you look at phantom limb, so there are, uh, unfortunately, people, for example, who've had an arm cut off, um, who still feel their arm. They still feel like they have a hand, and they have they can phantom pains. They can have phantom pains in their hand, and phantom experiences of cold, hot, itch, pressure, um, and pain in. And if you say, what, where does it hurt? And they'll point to empty space and it hurts right there and there's nothing there. And, and so you're actually constructing, even your ex- experience of touch is a virtual reality that, that, that you construct. And this is true of, of all of our senses. And another example of this, I'll just give you, um, there was, there's something called synesthesia. So about 4% of humans have synesthesia, which is a, a different organization of the senses. And I'll just give you a concrete example. A guy named Michael Watson, everything that he tasted on his tongue, he also felt as a three-dimensional object in space with his hands. So mint, when he tasted mint, he would feel a tall, cold, smooth column of glass. He could feel it in 3D, put his hands around it in 3D with, and feel the temperature, the surface, the smoothness, um, Angostura bitters, which is something you put in drinks, um, felt like a basket of ivy. He could feel the leaves, the tendrils, the whole bit. He could feel all around it in 3D. Carol Sir, feel it where, like, like in his hands, or his hands. all That's over right. in his hands? Okay, right and it's an invisible thing. That's right. In space, he, so so here's a case where he was touching and he felt it with his hands, just like you touch it your keyboard on your computer. He was touching these things with his hands, and and every taste had a touch. So here's a case where you, where the touch is clearly just a user interface. And by the way, he was a good cook. He had this extra representation of taste in terms of three-dimensional objects, their, their textures, their weights. He could feel the weight of them, their surface shapes. And so he, he you know, became, he was a great cook because he could experience sauces in much more subtle ways than perhaps the rest of us can. So, so again, here's a case where we see clearly touch. It was just um, a user interface and not the reality. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. The, some of these things that I hear about this connection that we have between our minds and our, and our bodies. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of like psychodermatology. Psychoneurodermatology. Psychodermatology. This is like where, yeah, this is like, I've heard stories of like hypnotists that can make someone visualize themselves on a beach where there's scorching sun, but they themselves are inside. But afterwards, over time, they'd be able to get a tan and their skin would actually become bronzer. And it's, it's just, it's just out of this world. It just doesn't make sense scientifically, but there's stuff like that that apparently exists. I have no no knowledge of that myself, so that's, that's quite interesting. But I haven't studied that, so I, I can't comment. I, I can say that there, you know, in terms of the power of the of of the mind and the body, there is um, something called um, anosognosia, um, and where well, it's. Now, now we'll go with anosognosia. So, um, th- there are there are people who have had a stroke in the right hemisphere that leave them with the left hemiparalysis. 
And they deny that there's any problem. They don't recognize that they have a paralysis. And, and so here's a case. But, but then there are certain manipulations that you can do on the person to help, help them get out of it. And then when they get out of it, they, they will tell you that they knew all – they give you evidence that they knew all along that there was a problem there. But there, it's sort of there's a problem of denial that, that is so deep that, that they deny the reality. But then you can bring them out of it. So, so yeah, there, there, huh. there are – there, that's, that's well documented. That you, know, you don't get it so much with left hemisphere stroke, but you do get it with the right hemisphere stroke. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, psychedelics is always something that I've been probably more recently curious about where when you're on LSD or, or mushrooms, you seem to have this different alternating perception of reality, I guess, as you see it. And it almost feels like you're entering into a different universe. People probably think, I'm crazy if, if for those that haven't done it. Uh, people that have obviously can relate to it. Um, have you given any thought to the perception of reality when, uh, and, and this, this conjointment of using psychedelics to reach different alternatives of reality? Or do you feel like that's more just in our own heads? Um, it's an interesting question whether the psychedelics are because they in some sense they we hear that they open the doors of perception right that was um one, one phrase that's been used it opens the doors of perception suggesting that that in fact we're getting in touch through psychedelics to a, a reality beyond the everyday physical physical world and then the other point of view is that uh no you're just sort of addling the brain and and you know you do random stuff to the brain of course you're gonna get random stuff happening but pushing my eye the whole world seems to bounce around but you know the world isn't bouncing around i'm just pushing on my eye um mm. I, and i you know as a scientist of course i'll have to you know i'm saying that there's a reality beyond space and time so i, I can't deny that there's a reality beyond space and time there th there is the the question now of course i want to be a sober scientist i want to say that i mean i want to be open to the idea that Certain psychedelic experiences may be giving us some insights into something beyond space and time. Absolutely want to be open to it. I also want to be hard-nosed about it and say, um, maybe I'm just scrambling my interface, right? So it, I mean, the, it, so what I need, so, so those are the two options, right? A genuine insight into something beyond the interface versus, no, it's just screwing up my interface. Not, so I'm not seeing behind the interface. I'm just screwing up my interface, right? It's like... I got a software glitch in my VR headset. That's all I'm doing. I'm doing a software glitch. I'm not mm -hmm. actually seeing the circuits and software behind it, right? Those are two very, very different things, right, that could be going on with the psychedelics. It's one is just, no, you just messed up. Somehow you messed up your headset a little bit. But no, you're not seeing deeper truth. The other is, no, you, you, you're not just messing up your headset. You're actually looking at the voltages that you need to be toggling if you're going to deal with objective reality. That's what's happening to you. Um, so how do we answer that question? Which I mean, so you posed a really good question. I think the the only way as a scientist for us to try to answer that question is to say, look, we can't answer it until we propose a theory of objective reality beyond space and time. That's mathematically precise. Proposed exactly how that theory maps into our space-time headset. Proposed exactly what 
within that headset, what do brains correspond to, right? When you take psychedelics, they're affecting your brain. So what is what does the brain correspond to in the objective reality? The, the brain is just a user interface symbol. It's an icon on your desktop, right? From this point of view, this is the radical. You know, so if, if, if people think I've, I'm saying something that's not that radical, here's what the radical aspect of it. The brain is just another icon in your desktop. Your brain, strictly speaking, causes none of your behavior. It causes none of your conscious experiences. The brain is just what you see when you look inside of skulls. It's just another user interface symbol. Now, there is some objective reality that we're interacting with when we see a brain, but that objective reality is nothing like a brain. It has nothing like neurons. Well, we have, so, 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 by the way, I love neuroscience. I've done brain, brain imaging studies. I've published brain imaging studies. I think neuroscience is really important. But when we look in the brain and we see neurons, we can't take it at face value. We're going to have to be far more sophisticated. It's not, I see neurons, that's because there are neurons in objective reality. No, this is a user interface symbol. What, when I see neural networks, what is that telling me about a much deeper reality that doesn't look like neural networks. It's not even in space and time. So, so I have to reverse engineer what I see. So, so in other words, I need more funding for neuroscience, not less. The problem of neuroscience is much, much harder than we ever thought. We thought, I see a neuron, there is a neuron. No, no, no. I see a neuron, there's this fundamentally different realm that I'm going to have to understand that projects to what I see as a neuron. I need to understand that whole mapping. So there is a ton of, this is job security for neuroscience, what I'm, what I'm proposing here. We, we've, in some sense, the real work of neuroscience is yet ahead of us to understand what in objective reality corresponds to neurons, neural circuits, and neural activity. Once we've got all that, then we can try to answer your question. Because then we can, we'll have a model. So when I take LSD, that particular chemical, what does that correspond to in the objective reality, right? The chemicals are just interface symbols. What is that doing in objective reality? Is that actually just, when I have this whole mathematical model of reality, how it maps onto the interface, how the brain looks in that interface, am I just addling the interface? Am I just screwing up the interface? Or am I literally opening a new portal in the interface into objective reality. So, so your, your question is a good one, and you can see that um, I probably won't answer it in my lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's a very, very deep question, but it's exactly the right question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only closest thing I can think about in terms of this objective reality, which, again, is probably, it's probably, there's so many different layers to this, which is, you know, when you're on some sort of psychedelic or, or, or perhaps marijuana where it's cognitively messing up your perception of reality and you have a friend of yours that's filming you right across the room and in your mind you have this reality of this thing making sense and you're talking about it and you feel it, you, you see something visually, let's say a painting or it's like very colorful and then you see the actual footage of the video that your friend took the next day when you're sober and you realize, oh shit, yeah, this is not my perception. This is not accurate at all. Right. And I guess the question is like, which one was the real truth? Is it the one that we saw in our sober reality or is it the one that we were able to tap into using other factors? So it's, it's when you introduce like film and photography that has our, you know, our agreement of like what objective reality is, it, you know, it kind of confuses people. 
Right. It sort of deflates you, right? You go, oh, I, I thought I had these deep, deep insights into the truth, and I was just stoned. You know, and I was yeah. coherent and, 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 and not to be taken too terribly seriously. And, and in some sense, I'm saying that that's what's true of us when we're sober. We, we look at all this. We, we, uh, we're sure that this is the truth. And at least according to evolution, nope, this isn't the truth. And we've believed it very, very deeply. And so, so that's, that should also be a warning to us that when we're stoned, we, we, we tend to believe what we're, what we're experiencing there. So we have this a tendency to just believe whatever it is that we're experiencing. And so we need to be cautious about that. Yeah. Do you think in your lifetime we'll ever understand what consciousness is at a, at a, at the, at the highest level? Well, that's that's what I'm working on right now, um, and so the the short answer is, I think we will make progress. I mean, I'm I'm 65. If I live for 15 years, uh, 15, 15 more years, you know, get, make it to 80 or something like that, I think we'll make quite a bit of progress um, in the next 15, 20 years. How um, do you define consciousness based on what you know today? Right. People? Great question. Um, because the word consciousness can be used for a, a lot of things, right? It's so <clears throat> the, the, the thing that I'm talking about when I talk about consciousness is something very, very simple, just simple experiences like the taste of chocolate, the smell of garlic, the feeling of a headache, uh, an emotion, those so uh, I mean, people might use consciousness for all you know it has to be some exalted self-aware kind of state or something like that and 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 that's perfectly fine but but for for me the the scientific problems of consciousness are completely present in just these the, what we might think of the simplest sensory experiences something that i could imagine a rat has i, I can imagine that a rat smells cheese and has an experience when it smells cheese and, and when it eats cheese. And, and that is where I'm, as a scientist, really want to focus on just the qualitative nature of sensory experiences, how it feels to, you know, have a headache, how it feels to taste chocolate, um, and, and so forth. You know, the, to get an idea, I mean, if, if I, um, have a robot, and I bang the robot with a hammer on its robotic arm, and the robot is programmed to say, ouch. I'm not inclined to feel empathy for the robot. I'm not too worried. I mean, I, you know, I, I may not want to hammer it because I don't want to you know, ruin the hardware, but I'm not, I'm not worried about that robot in the sense that I would not do that to a mouse. I would not hit a mouse with a hammer because I – really feel like that mouse could feel feel pain i think the odds are it would feel pain and there it would be just cruel for me to do it whereas you know in the case of the robot you know i, I wouldn't want to hammer it just because i don't want to hurt expensive equipment but if you ask me is there any moral thing about the pain of the robot no no now could we eventually get robots that are sophisticated enough that you know it's an interesting separate question but that i'm just bringing that up to say what i'm talking about here the very simple experiences the raw uh, sensory experiences and now the standard view 
has been that space and time were fundamental. There was the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. There was only space, time, and energy and matter. That was it. There was no life, much less consciousness. There was no consciousness. Life didn't emerge until hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of years later. And then on that story, consciousness emerged much later than life. And so consciousness is uh, a latecomer on the, the pre-existing stage of space-time. That's, that's the standard physicalist view. I'm saying that that entire view is false. Space-time is doomed. When we say space-time is doomed, we're saying that that story is not correct. It's, there's a deeper story. That's only an interface story. It's not the deepest story, the deepest scientific story that we can give. Now, I don't know what's outside of space-time. I don't know. I'm taking a creative leap, and I admit that I'm probably wrong, and we'll see. But what I'm, the leap I'm taking is I'm saying, let's, if, if, if space-time isn't fundamental, what is? I don't know. I'm going to try to propose that consciousness is fundamental. And so, not just a hand wave of consciousness, I have a mathematical model, and if people are, are interested in you know looking at it, it, I've published a paper called Objects of Consciousness. So if you just Google Objects of Consciousness and Hoffman, you'll find the paper and you can read it for yourself. It's a mathematically precise model of consciousness in which I try to boil down consciousness to its bare bones. What is the minimal thing that I could assert about consciousness that would allow me to boot up a theory of consciousness that gives the full variety of all the complexity of consciousness. So, so and this, that's what we do in science. We try to come up with the minimal assumptions that can boot up the entire field, right? That's what we, you don't want to throw in the kitchen sink. You want to, you know, make as, as few assumptions as possible. So the assumptions I make about consciousness are that there are conscious experiences like the, Smelling garlic, having a headache, raw, simple conscious experiences, maybe not so simple. <laughs> seeing red versus not, not seeing red, something very simple like that. Mm-hmm. That those conscious experiences um, affect choices. So there's a notion of agency. So I, I have this thing I call a conscious agent. It has experiences, and those experiences affect choices and those choices are the only thing they do is to affect the experiences of other agents that's it so there are experiences that inform choices those choices all they can do is to affect the experiences of other agents that's for those who are interested in mathematics i have a measurable space of conscious experiences and a markovian kernel that lets me uh, affect other conscious agents but think of it this way it's a vast social network like the Twitterverse. Each agent is like a, a Twitter user. And just like you can tweet and follow, these agents, these conscious agents are having experiences influenced by other agents, and then they are, so they're the, the ones that they follow are, are you know, affecting their experiences, and then they tweet out their, the consequences of their experiences to others, which affect the experiences of others. So it's like the Twitterverse. So I'm proposing that objective, and, and by the way, again, of course I'm probably wrong. The whole point of science is you got to go out, be bold, be mathematically precise. And so I've got a mathematical model. 
we're doing the network. So this is now network dynamics, right? It's, it's like just like we have to understand the dynamics of social networks, and it's really complicated. Social networks are really complicated, but and there's new math in just the last few decades on how to understand social networks and how misinformation propagates through networks and all sorts of things. That's the mathematics that I'm having to, to work with, is to understand um, the, the dynamics of conscious agents. And here's the, the idea. First, I'm after, there's no notion of self in my basic definition, right? So I have to show how you could create a self. There's no notion of intelligence. There's just raw experience and simple actions to influence others. So I have to use networks of con networks of these agents to build up learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, a self, all these things that I didn't put into my foundation assumptions, I have to be able to create as networks of conscious agents. So that's that'll be one evidence of whether I'm onto the right track. Can I actually build these things from the network dynamics? The other thing will be how do I get space time and physics and everything that we see inside space-time arising as just a headset. So the idea will be so, and I have to do that with mathematical precision. So, so the idea at top level is this: think the Twitterverse, right? There are tens of millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets. There's no way that you, as a Twitter user, could interact with all those users or read all the tweets. It's just overwhelming amount of data. So if you want to get a feel for what's going on in the Twitterverse, what, what do you do? You have to have a visualization tool, maybe a virtual reality headset that lets you see what's trending in New York versus what's, what's trending in Germany versus what's tra tra trending in all of China. Or you may want to you know, zoom out to all of China, or zoom in to what's happening in Beijing, or zoom in to happening into what's happening in a particular user at a particular street inside Beijing, right? So you want a visualization tool that lets you zoom out and zoom in, because other, but the tool, of course, is going to be ignoring most of the details, right? It's going to be looking, for example, at trends, what's trending. And that's going to be the big idea, that space and time and physical objects are just a visualization tool that give us the long-term trends of what's happening in this network of conscious agents. So the objective reality is this vast social network of conscious agents. It's overwhelmingly complicated. There are countless agents. My interface gives me the most direct content, contact with certain agents. I call them human beings. But, 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 but when I look at you, right, all I see is skin, hair, and eyes. I don't actually see your consciousness. And if you look at your own face in the mirror, all you see is skin, hair, and eyes. What, what you know firsthand that what you see in the mirror is trivial compared to your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your love of music. The whole rich world of your conscious experiences is hidden behind this simple, trivial thing that we just call the human face. That's, it's obvious firsthand that the face is a trivial icon. Behind that icon is the rich world of your conscious experiences. I'm saying that that's really true. The objective reality is this rich world of conscious agents with their conscious experiences. Space-time is just a dumbed-down visualization tool that allows us to deal with the overwhelming complexity of consciousness, this whole vast social network of consciousness. When I see a cat... 
my I've got a visualization symbol which has given me less insight into the consciousness that I'm interacting with. I mean, I can tell if my cat likes it, if I'm petting it, or if it likes the food. But in, in the case of an ant, my interface has given me far less information about the consciousness that I'm dealing with. When I get down to a bacterium, it's game over. I have no idea. I mean, I, I am interacting with uh, the realm of conscious agents, but my interface is giving up because, of course, it has to. That's the whole point of an interface. It simplifies, simplifies until it finally gives up. When I get down to like what I call quantum particles, you know, protons and neutrons and quarks and gluons, I've completely given up. You know, I, I, there's no insight into consciousness at all. No surprise, an interface has to dumb things down, and at some point it just gives up, right? It, it, and so physicalism is the mistake of taking our interface for the truth. And like, why is it the case that the cats we we have less perception of con consciousness with, uh, with with uh, with let's say ants versus cats? Is that because they have less consciousness in terms of our view of life? Actually, from this point of view, it's a great question, and and the answer is no, not because they have less consciousness. It's because of a limit of our interface. It's not a limit of their consciousness. For all I know, the when I see what I call a rock, my interface has given me no, no insight into life, much less consciousness, right? But the I'm interacting with the realm of conscious states. I'm not saying a rock is conscious, by the way. By the way, I'm not saying the human body is conscious. Your human, the human body is just an icon. You know, you're, the body literally, specifically, in space and time, is not who you are. It's just an icon. So, so the rock isn't conscious. The human body isn't conscious. These are merely icons that are that are visualization tools that are pointing to the realm of conscious agents. And for all I know, when I see something that to me looks like a stupid rock, the realm of conscious agents that I'm interacting with is far more brilliant and has a far greater range of experiences than I could ever imagine. In other words, this turns everything on its head. We, we, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of the epitome, right, the highest level of consciousness. For all I know, we're just somewhere in the middle, and there are consciousnesses that, that we can't even understand. In fact, most consciousness that we, we can't even comprehend in the following sense, very simple sense. If I ask you, Imagine a specific color that you've never seen before. Can you? Can't. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. I, I've asked a trivial little exercise of your imagination. Just imagine one stupid little color you've never seen before. Can't do it. I'm saying that there's an infinite range or a countless range of possible experiences out there that other agents are having that you and I can't even concretely imagine. That's how rich this, this universe is. And for all I know, when I'm interacting with the rock, um, what I, what's on the other side of the interface could be something, if I could come face to face with it, I might just fall down and worship it. You know, who knows? It would, be, it would just be so profound. But all I see is a rock. So what we have to learn from this new point of view is things that look dumb to me, that's not an insight into the reality. That's a feature of my interface. Yeah. So that's we have, so have to 
We have to be much more clever. It's much harder work now. We Instead of taking what we see at face value, the, the rock looks dumb, therefore it is dumb. It's rather, no, no, no. There's a deeper framework. What is the structure of my interface? What is the data structure here? You know, think, think in computer science. There's some data structure that I'm using. I'm mapping this deeper reality into this data structure. Just because I get this simple data structure doesn't mean the reality is simple. It depends on what got mapped into it and how much compression. Did I lose a lot of information in that mapping? Then, yeah, it looks stupid to me because I lost a lot of information in the mapping. But that's just then a limit of my interface. And I have to be very careful to say that, therefore, the thing that mapped into it is also stupid and simple. That, that's a really dangerous move to say that it, because it looks stu- stupid to me that it must be stupid. So, so this makes it much more sophisticated. And that's why I was saying that neuroscience, I mean, this is job security for neuroscience because we have to actually reverse engineer neural networks and, and neural circuitry and understand what is te- telling us about this network of conscious agents. That is some serious work. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like what you're proposing then is what we're seeing potentially could be so far from reality to the point where rocks themselves could be something that we're that we should be potentially worshiping. Yet, I guess where I'm confused at is how can so many there's certain things that we're there that there's universally you know you know, well at least the people that live on this earth are perhaps scared of or things that we just might ignore. This isn't just me. This is all of humans that would go up to a rock and they'd be far less scared than, let's say, a tiger. But it's not just humans, but it's also dogs or cats or any living animal would be far less scared of a rock than uh, than a lion. So there's certain truths that I think people that are at least alive today can 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 all agree on um but it seems like what you're proposing is something that could be so far off that isn't even within our perception so so i I guess that's where i'm a little bit confused right so so the idea is that it's not that i would want to worship the rock or that there's something special about the rock the rock is just my creation right that's just part of my headset it's just a symbol Mm -hmm. there's another icon on the desktop my only point is that I mean, so so my icon on the desktop say um, is is just blue and rectangular in the middle of my screen, but maybe that icon is pointing to um, a paper. Maybe it's like Einstein's special theory of relativity paper, right? Well, I mean, the icon looks pretty dumb and stupid. It's just a rectangular blue thing on the middle of my screen, but behind it is this incredible article that is mind blowing. It that tells you about the special relativity and light and so forth. And I, that's that's the relationship. So the so I wouldn't worship the icon. It's just blue and red. But 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 I would recognize that even though the icon looks stupid to me, the paper is not stupid. The paper behind the icon is not stupid. So it's not that the rock is special. It's just that the rock it looks stupid because that's just the tools I've got. That's my problem. It's my limitation. It's my representation that's dumb. The thing behind the rock just like the thing behind the blue rectangular icon, could be really, really exalted. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'll, I will have to explain is you know, your user interface lets the world affect you, right? But it also lets you affect the world. And so, just to, so certain symbols like the rock 
I'm getting trivial information about if if I'm right about this network of conscious agents, right? The then then it would follow that the rock is giving me trivial information about that network. I have no idea what that network is like from a rock. But it may then also follow, and this is why I need to do the math, that if the interface is such that the 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 rock is giving me trivial access to the world, it also is the case that for most purposes, I can't use the rock to get to that world, right? So I, if I hammer the rock, I'm not hurting agents. I'm, I'm not inflicting pain. But but again, I need to work work that out. And there are cases where I could use that rock. If I took that rock and, and hit a person with the rock, then I am inflicting pain. But I'm inflicting pain not because of the rock icon per se, but because I'm using that to affect the icon of their body. So certain icons are giving me a portal into consciousness and a, an ability to affect consciousness. And this is where the mathematics is going to have to be really worked out. Um, but just like in you know a, a virtual reality game like Grand Theft Auto, the icon for the steering wheel and the gas pedal are really important icons. They're what really let me play the game. You know, banging on the you know the the dashboard isn't going to do anything for me, right? I mean, that is an icon, but when I bash on it, it's not. It doesn't help me drive the car. It doesn't help me brake. It doesn't help me accelerate. So, right. so that, that's sort of the point. A, a user interface gives us certain symbols that allow us to affect the reality beyond the interface, and that's what we have to work out in this new mathematical model. Is Exactly. What are the accelerators and the steering wheels in our interface? What and how are they affecting this reality? If it is, if I'm right about this network of conscious agents, how is it that, you know, what we call physical objects allow us to interact with conscious agents and affect their consciousness? Gosh, this is so above my pay grade. I mean, I'm not even going to dig into the mathematics of this stuff, but um, <laughs> are you are you are you saying the. Are you saying that um, consciousness and is potentially linked to the brain, or is consciousness something that's separate from our brains? Meaning, if we lose our brain, do we lose our consciousness? Well, we we do know as a matter of empirical fact that, for example, if you have a stroke in like area V four of, of the left hemisphere, then you will lose all color experience in the right half of your visual world. You still see color in the left half of the world, but you don't see color in the right half. You just see shades of gray. So we know that there are clean correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. So I'm not denying that. And there's gotcha. hundreds of them. Brain activity is correlated with conscious experience. What I'm denying is that brain activity causes conscious experience. The brain is a user interface symbol That's that I think is telling us about – this is another aspect of the theory that I haven't talked about – each agent, each conscious agent, when you, when, when you have agents that interact, they form new agents. So when agents interact, it turns out the mathematics says the dynamics of conscious agents interacting creates new agents. So you are not just one agent. You are two agents. You are four agents. You are a whole hierarchy, a whole network of conscious agents that you – and you represent that whole network in terms of your body and your brain. So your brain is just an icon symbol that's telling you about all these other agents that are interacting together to form the single top-level agent that, that's, that you call you. And, and gotcha. so, so the brain – So, but to be very, very clear, 
space and time don't exist apart from your perceptions. Space and time are just the format of your perceptions. So nothing in space and time exists apart from your perceptions. Nothing. Right? Just to dig into that Anything. point, because um, the, the idea of you is interesting for me because where I was going with that question is there's a common procedure. I don't know the name of it, but it's often for babies and very young children that are under the age of three that have seizures at very young ages. And you, you feel free to let me know what the procedure is called, but it's basically where they split and cut the brain in half. Kamijirotomy. At, right. <laughs> what you said, what you said. And I guess the idea from a medical perspective is that it's so young where the brain is just starting to develop that they can live. They, they're basically cutting out the part of the brain, let's say the left part, that is causing the seizures and they're allowing the right part of the brain to grow. And, and the idea is they're young enough where over time, when they grow up, they'll still be able to have uh, the, the full functions of the brain, maybe not the full, but at least to be livable. The theory that I have is if you were able to take the other part of the brain that someone took and put it into a different body, does that person now have two consciousness? And, and you, you asked a really good question. So, so, um, so you're absolutely right that when we do surgery on the brain, it has specific and important effects um, that we can predict, say, on, on, on consciousness. And so the, the obvious question is, how does that fit into this whole theory that I'm, that I'm talking about here? I mean, if I'm saying that the brain um, is just an icon, then how come when I cut the brain, things happen to consciousness, right? Doesn't that seem to contradict what I'm saying? And so think about it. Again, in terms of um, you've got a blue rectangular icon on your desktop, and you, I'm going to do a radical surgery, and I'm going to drag it to the trash can. And when I do that, the file gets deleted. Now, is it the case that the literal movement of the pixels of that icon to the trash can pixels caused the file to be deleted well no what you know there's that's just what i see on the desktop so it's it's not the case that the movement of the icon to the trash can caused the file to be deleted in fact when i drag that icon to the trash can i'm as a normal user i have no idea what i'm really doing in the computer right i'm triggering millions and millions of operations and Tons and tons of magnetic fields are being changed and voltages are being toggled. I have no idea what I'm doing. But the end result is that, you know, maybe the, the file isn't erased. Maybe it's just, um, you know, I can't locate it anymore, right? The file, the bits are still in the computer. Or maybe I erased it, right? You could, maybe you did a hard erase. And so you've really erased the, those magnetic fields from, from a drive or something. Uh, so that the key point is we, we see even when we use the interface on our computer and we do something like delete a file, what we see on the screen is trivial, right? It, it allows us to delete the file. Yes. I mean, it, I dragged the blue icon to the trash can. I deleted the file. Do I really know how I did it? Absolutely not. 
Was the blue icon really critical? Well, only to guide my actions, but but the blue icon is sort of is really irrelevant, right? It didn't really do anything. The thing that really happened is is hidden from me. Same thing with the brain. So the brain, it, it is true that when we like damage area V4, we lose color. Damage uh, V5, you actually lose motion perception in half the visual world. There's, you know, or I can take a TMS unit and um, stimulate a certain part of the temporal, medial temporal lobe, and uh, some people will have a transcendental religious experience, right? So they'll, 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 I want that. They'll, they'll say that they've been ushered into the presence of God, however they understand God. Yeah. So, so all of these things are, are true, but that doesn't mean that the brain is causing it. The brain, just like that blue icon symbol, or or like the steering wheel in Grand Theft Auto, it it it's the right user interface icon to do certain. If I want to turn my car, use the steering wheel icon. If I want to accelerate, don't use the steering wheel icon. Use the gas pedal icon. If I want to brake, then use the brake pedal. So there are different icons that that do different things. But if you're a if you're a Grand Theft Auto player and don't know the computer science behind the software that's running it, you don't really know what you're doing. When you turn your wheel, you, you're playing the game, you're doing, you're doing really well. You have no idea what you're really doing in reality. And so that's one really surprising thing from this whole thing that I'm saying. When you act in everyday life, picking up a fork, putting food in your mouth, shaking hands, hitting a tennis ball, you have your interface picture of what you're doing, but we never know what we're really doing in reality. I have no idea what I'm actually doing in objective reality. I can only see a depiction. So my, my hand itself is my hand picks up a spoon or picks up a tennis ball. I, all I know is my interface projection of what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm really doing. It's truly, Gosh. It's, it's truly humbling. This is a, this point of view is really, really so this this point of view is it it's profound in the sense that you know space time is gone. It, it's not fundamental. That that's enough. But now I don't even know what I am because my body is just an icon. I don't know what I'm doing. But I think the tools of science are up to the challenge. I think we can build models of objective reality. Ex show how space and time and brains and bodies and physical objects arise as interface icons and we can slowly work toward understanding what we really are and what we're really doing. I think that that's possible um, in, in, in principle, but it's not possible if we remain blinkered, if we just say space time is fundamental, this is the truth. If you never are willing to remove the headset you can never see what's outside the headset. We've got to be willing to remove the headset and really think outside of that box. That's this is you know that that's the big one. Re recognizing that this is just a headset. Every symbol inside of it is just a headset symbol. I've got to think about the reality outside this headset, how it gets mapped into the data structures that I see in my headset, like a steering wheel. 
What is it in the supercomputer that corresponds to the steering wheel? What is it in the supercomputer that corresponds to the gas pedal? Why is it that the gas pedal does this, the steering wheel does that in the game of life? That's like, why does the brain do this? Why does my hand do that? Why does a rock do this and so forth? Why does LSD do that? We have to be really sophisticated because we have to reverse engineer them beyond the headset. What is what is the thing behind the headset that corresponds to LSD in the headset? What is the thing behind the headset that corresponds to a neuron? Once we get those correspondences, then we can begin to understand what are we really doing when we eat food? What are we really doing when we pick up a ball? Right now, I have no idea what I'm really doing. It's true. It's a profound ignorance. <laughs> but but that, that this it's truly stunning ignorance that we have. <clears throat> This brings me to my next question, which is, are we living in a simulation? Oh, good question. Um, so there's something in what I'm saying that's similar to the simulation ideas, like Nick Bostrom and others who have the simulation hypothesis, but there's something that's, that's deeply different. So let me say what's similar and then what's deeply different. What, yeah, what is the hypothesis, just to, just to clarify? Right. So, yeah. so Bostrom and Nick Bostrom and, and, and others um, are, are suggesting that, you know, think about us. We're getting to the point where we can build VRs that are pretty powerful, virtual realities that are pretty powerful. Um, we could imagine that they could get so powerful enough that they are so realistic that um, we might be able to uh, create agents that, that are conscious and that, that are taken in by their worlds. And so, so the idea might be that, look, maybe we are such simulated agents, right? So maybe there's a programmer in a different level of reality. There's some teenager with, with pimples and, 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 but, but a nice laptop and they've, they've simulated the whole thing. We're just their plaything. And maybe that teenager in their laptop is just the simulation of a of another brilliant hacker at a at a lower level. It's going and going all the way way down. So that so you can imagine this going all the way down to some base level. So there's some first programmer, some the 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 ultimate hacker at the bottom that that started this whole house of uh, you know levels. And Bostrom and would then and others would say, what is the probability that we're at the bottom layer of that? Very very small. So if there is a whole bunch of simulations, we're probably not the, the the base level. We're probably just somewhere in there. So we're probably this is just a simulation is the idea. So so what's similar in their idea to what I'm saying is what they're saying is that this space time and what we're seeing here is not fundamental. There's a deeper reality. And I agree with that. But here's where I disagree they still adopt a physicalist framework for the whole thing. That base programmer at the very, very bottom, wherever that might be, is in some space and time and some physical world with its own Big Bang or whatever. That's that, so it's a physical world. So there, so I'm, I disagree with that. I'm saying physicalism is fundamentally false. Space-time is fundamentally doomed. Space-time does not exist fundamentally. That's just the wrong framework. Second thing I disagree with. They're assuming that a physical system like a computer, if it's programmed cleverly enough, can create consciousness. 
or the illusion of consciousness. And I deny that. Um, now, why do I deny that? Um, I, I have many brilliant friends and colleagues who have mathematical models um, where they're trying to start with physical systems and boot up consciousness. So, um, uh, for example, Tononi and Koch um, have this integrated information theory model of consciousness where you start with physical systems that have certain um, integrated information theoretic properties, so certain causal architectures. And if you have the right causal architecture with the right kind of integrated information, then that is either identical to or causes consciousness to, to emerge. Um, but they've not been able to use that theory to even say what the integrated architecture is, the causal architecture is, for even one specific conscious experience, like the taste of a lemon or the smell of garlic. When, you know, I've asked Julia to know you a couple times over the years, and recently, in the last couple, three years, I you know, asked him, so, you know, nice mathematical theory, so I'm interested in conscious, so what conscious experience can you explain? Is there is there any specific conscious experience where you've given me the integrated information circuit for that conscious experience? What, where, so we can go test it. I mean, this is science after all. What Give me the specific prediction of a specific conscious experience with a specific architecture so we can go test it. And you can't. There is none. Not one. And this has been 15, 20 years that they've been working on it. Or there's, um, you know, Stuart. And by the way, you know, these, these are my colleagues and friends. I mean, they're smart people. Um, I'm not saying that the theories are dumb or they're dumb. And by, no, these are brilliant, brilliant people. This is just a hard problem. So Stuart Hameroff, another a great guy, friend, um, theory of microtubules, the quantum states of microtubules having a coherent collapse. And somehow that that is identical with or creates conscious experiences. And again, I've asked Stuart in, in front of an audience in, at, at conference, uh, okay, Stuart, well, great. So what's the orchestrated collapse of microtubules that's, uh, you know, like quantum states of microtubules that um, say, you know, the taste of chocolate or, or can you give me you know, any one? Is there any particular experience now that you can tell me that what the orchestrated collapse of quantum states is? Can't do it. And, and that's where the, the state of play is. There's the, the, another one of um, the idea that um, there, consciousness is related to sort of global broadcasting properties of certain computer networks. So if you, if you have a, a, some kind of global workspace or global prod, broadcasting system, that that somehow is equated to uh, consciousness or creates consciousness. And, and, and again, my, my question there is, okay, great idea. It's really in, intriguing idea. So what is the, the broadcast architecture or the global workspace architecture um, and precise states that are, you know, the taste of a lemon? What, what, what is that? And, and again, there's not, literally nothing on the table. So here's the big point. There is no scientific theory that starts with space, time, and matter that can predict even one specific conscious experience, not one. So the idea, and I think it's principled. I think this failure is principled. And the reason is we've mistaken the interface for reality. We've what do you mean by principled again? Principled means that um, it's not just because you're not smart enough. It's because you started in the wrong place. <laughs> hmm. There's, in other words, you will never get there. Even though these guys have IQ out the wazoo, they're really, really smart. If you start with the wrong place, 
you'll never, you, you just can't solve the problem. And they're assuming that space time and particles matter, like quarks and gluons, protons and neutrons is the fundamental reality. And that we can then somehow get them together in a complicated enough pattern dynamics so that you can create consciousness. And I'm saying that that's flawed fundamentally because space time is not fundamental and particles are not fundamental. They don't create anything. They're just interface. It's like trying to say, I've got these nice little pixels in my headset and those pixels are, are creating all of reality. No, those pixels don't create reality. They're, they're just a data format. You know, the, the, in that metaphor is the supercomputer with its, you know, megabytes of software and so forth. That's the reality. The pixels are just a data format that I use to simplify that reality. So the, the simulation hypothesis is still assuming that unconscious space, time, and matter is fundamental and that somehow consciousness could be booted up from unconscious space, time, and matter. And I'm saying that I think for principled reasons that can never happen. On the other hand, um, consciousness, yeah. if it's fundamental, can use what we call space, time, and matter as just a user interface format. So it's straightforward to get space, time, and matter as just a user interface format. So, so starting with consciousness, I can get space, time, and matter, and I've got work to do to, to show in detail. I mean, I need, for example, I need to show that I can predict from the dynamics of consciousness. I need to be able to predict, say, the scattering amplitude for gluons at the Large Hadron Collider. I need to get it precise. I need to get scattering for all the different particles, gluon, gluon interaction, photon, electron. I need to get all those scattering processes to, you know, and decimal places before I should be taken seriously. That's what we need to do. So, so there's a lot of work ahead for, for me to do, and, and then I'll have lunch. Um, but, <laughs> but so there's, there's tons of work. But, but the idea that you can start with space and time and particles and boot up consciousness, there's not one success there yet. Not one. Right. So th those people, I mean, you guys just have a different theory, it seems, but do all of you guys believe that there is a potential that we do live in a simulation? Just to go back to that? Um, I think among my neuroscience colleagues, the simulation, most of my neuroscience co colleagues um, are physicalists. So th they they assume that space, time, and matter are fundamental. The Big Bang was the origin of everything in our universe. And, you know, th th I think most of them would say the simulation idea is, a, is, a, is a, a, an intriguing idea, but uh, not to be taken terribly seriously. Um, so uh, I'm just now talking about my colleagues in cognitive neuroscience, right? This is, I would say, just in my informal conversations with them. They, most of them think neurons exist whether, they're not, whether or not they're perceived. Space and time exist. The moon exists whether or not they're perceived. Neural activity causes our behavior. Anybody who thinks otherwise is sort of nuts. Um, and all these correlations between neural activity, like V4 and color experience, V5 and motion experience and so forth. Clear evidence, they would say, that, that brain activity causes our conscious experiences. That's the standard standard view. So, so you know, the simulation hypothesis is is understood but, but not taken too seriously. And, and my hypothesis um, um, is not taken too seriously. That this, the, what I would say, okay. ninety plus percent of my colleagues in neuroscience believe is, of course, the brain exists when no one looks. You don't need to look at neurons for them to exist. They they exist anyway, just like the moon exists. And of course, neural activity causes 
all of our behavior, and of course, neural activity causes our conscious experience. That's, I would say, 90 plus percent of my brilliant colleagues, good friends. I mean, I love these people. They're, they're, they're great people, even though we disagree on this. That, that's the standard view. And, and my idea you know, is, is definitely believed by less than 1%. Is it possible that both exist where the people that created the simulation formulated space and time in our world, in our simulation, but in their simulation and in their world, space and time doesn't exist? That would be a version of simulation theory that I would find quite interesting. That would that would be different than what's being proposed, right? What's being proposed is is a physicalist version. But you could imagine a version of the simulation theory um, in, in which um, maybe uh, the fundamental reality is not is not physical, is not space and time. In in some sense, when I talk about conscious agents interacting to create new conscious agents, yeah, I am doing that. I'm saying that a bunch of agents work together, and together they instantiate this interface that we call space and time and physical objects. They're this is a cooperative product of a bunch of agents. They're creating this interface and they're creating the symbol that I call my body and my brain. And so, yes, this space time is emerging from something that's not spatial or temporal at all. It's, and so I am saying in some sense, this is a simulation, but it's a simulation of consciousness, not mm -hmm. of, of some physical system. Now, Based on your perception and, and 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 the and the theories that you have around this, you know the fact that this isn't really reality as it seems. You know, how do you look at the afterlife? You know, why why are we here? Great question, quote unquote humans. Well, if, the right answer is I don't know, right? So, so I'll just put that right up front. And and the right answer to everything is I'm probably wrong. Um, that's just a scientific attitude, right? You, you, you go bold, you go precise and you go humble because you, you, you know, put it this way. We know that our best scientific theories to date are missing something fundamental. Space time isn't, space time is doomed. So it means, that means general relativity, and special relativity and quantum field theory, which is defined on space time. There's something fundamentally at the core that needs to be fixed about those theories. So if that's the case for our best theories, then surely Hoffman's latest theory is 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 going to be wrong too, right? That's just just in, in the cards. But life after death. Here here's an analogy to help see how I I could think about it. Imagine that you go to a virtual reality arcade with a bunch of friends and you to play say virtual tennis like doubles or something like that. And and you're so you put on your headset and bodysuit and you see your your partner on your side and two people on the other side of the net. And you you serve the tennis ball and you're playing for a while. And then one of your friends across the net, you know, Tom says, uh, "Excuse me, I need to get a drink. I'll be right back." So Tom takes off his headset and bodysuit to go get a drink, and his avatar collapses on the court, on the tennis court. It, you know, it is motionless. Well, it looks like Tom is dead. But but Tom isn't dead. He just stepped out of that virtual reality interface. He's off getting a drink. If space and time are not fundamental, if this if space time is literally just a data structure, a headset data structure that we use, then death 
could be nothing more than we, we see the avatar that's left behind, their body is the avatar that's left behind when they step out of this interface. It's quite plausible. Now, I don't know that – so that's plausible. It's, it's, it, it can happen in my framework. It cannot happen in a, in a physicalist framework, right? You are nothing but an assembly of atoms, and your consciousness is nothing but what your brain does. You know, the mind is what the brain does. When the brain doesn't do anything, the mind is not there. You're gone. So with, with physicalism, there is no, absolutely no survival after death. In this framework in which consciousness is fundamental, it allows for the possibility. Now, I don't know if the notion of a self survives, right? So consciousness survives, but what about the particular representation that I have of a me with my hopes and my desires and my loves and so forth? Does that survive? I, I, I don't know. I mean, for, for me, working within the, this framework, that will be one of the technical problems I would like. I'm a very interesting technical problem because we all have skin in the game, right? What, what, yeah. what does survive, right? Um, and th there, there is interesting work um, with near-death experiences. Um, there was um, a panel by the New York Academy of Sciences um, last fall where they had a bunch of medical doctors in the New York area and elsewhere who, who are dealing with people who have had no cortical activity for 20, 30, 40 minutes, and they were able to resuscitate them. And these people do describe, so this is not, not just like near-death, it's called near-death experience, but they literally were brain dead for half an hour. There, there was no EEG, just no EEG there at all. And they were able to bring them back. And these people routinely describe similar experiences of a, you know, a tunnel, a light, uh, a life review, and, uh, and all sorts of things that that, that that happens to them. And again, uh, as a, as a hard-nosed scientist, I do not take any of this at face value, right? I until you experience it, right? It, it, or like, even if you experience, even if it, I you experience have to quantify it, I can't it. take it. At, I mean, I don't. As I said, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. When I pick up a cup with my hand, I don't take that at at, at face value as a scientist anymore. I, I don't. I literally don't know what I'm doing. Uh, my theory tells me I don't know what I'm literally doing in reality. So, 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 science is. We have to be. It's really interesting what we have to do as science as scientists. There's this balance between being so hard nosed that you never learn anything. And so gullible that you believe everything, right? So how do we find that middle road? So how do we find what's credible? Normally what we try to do as scientists is try to get something where we have replicable experiments, where we can do it over and over and over again. And unfortunately, these first-person things are not like replicable experiments. It's not like we're, I can do and repeat an experiment. These are, these are more just stories, the, 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 these are anecdotes, right? It's... And I'm, I'm not. And I, on the other hand, I don't want to dismiss anecdotes. That's the thing. We need to take our ideas wherever we can get them. So we need, need to listen to these anecdotes. And, and if, if a lot of people are saying the same thing, take that very, very seriously. But we also need mathematical theories, right? If I can get a mathematical theory that predicts these anecdotes, 
Now, now I'm starting to perk up a little bit, right? Now, okay, so now I've got a mathematical model that predicts these kinds of anecdotes. That doesn't mean it's right, but um, the the BS meter goes down a little bit, right? That it, it, I need to give it more yeah. credibility. What about like brain brain machine interfaces that allow us to be able to see? Um, I, we actually had Dr. Moran Surfon, who's a neuroscientist, and he was talking about similar things where um, people were. He thinks that the potential for to be for people to be, you know, brought back to life through science and science and medicine for a temporary amount of time, uh, you know, if they were hooked to a brain machine interface, would be able to do crazy stuff like be able to communicate with those people uh, after they have, you know, so-called passed. And, and that would obviously change a lot of these different things. Could that help in some ways to be able to gather more data to understand what life after death could be? Uh, in principle, it's quite possible, but um, right now I think these proposals, we're really shooting in the dark because we don't have a mathematically precise theory of what's beyond the interface, right? What's beyond space and time? Um, and and so it, it's very much like someone who you know is a, a, a real good player at Grand Theft Auto, and they're trying to guess at how the software works. And, you know, why the steering wheel does what it does and the brake pedal. Well, you can imagine that most of the guesses are going to be wrong, right? And until you actually, you know, understand the code, and there's going to be many, many hundreds of megabytes of code, perhaps, maybe gigabytes of code that's involved here, then you can begin to intelligently understand how, you know, the steering wheel and, and, and work. And also in this case, the example you get, how the brain works and how we might interface with it. So, so I'm, I'm not dismissing the possibility. I'm saying we've got a ton of theory to do before we can do that intelligently. We've got to reverse engineer the whole interface. Um, it, I'll, I'll, let me put it another example like this. Um, so, so it's 1860 or something like that. And we've just discovered all these interesting things about electricity, say 1850. So we, we, we know, we don't know exactly how it works and there's no technology yet, but we, we've got, and we realize that, that somehow electricity can do stuff miraculously across space and time. And so we think, okay, so this is the mystical thing. This is the mystical thing that can connect us. And maybe if we like have seances and hold hands, we can use this power to, uh, actually communicate with people on the other side of the world using electricity. Well, it turns out you're right that you can use electricity to communicate with people on the other side of the world. But it's going to take you a century of hard work and mathematical modeling to allow what you and I are doing right now. I, I'm in direct contact with you. You're in Spain. I'm in California. We're literally on opposite sides of the world. We're using electricity to do what would seem miraculous to people in 1840, 1850. But we didn't get there by holding hands. We got there through hard mathematical analysis, years and years of technology development, development of infrastructure, and now we we can do it. And that's my guess is what what's going to happen here is right. I mean, you just can't leap there from here. We've got all this mathematical modeling to do. We have to understand the network of conscious agents, how it works, understand really what happens in, at death in, in this relationship to the interface. And then 
yes, I don't see in principle why eventually we might not be able to open new portals outside of our interface to conscious agents. But the technology and the mathematics and the theories that are going to be involved to do that, um, I'm excited to work on it, but, uh, you know, that's not trivial. Not trivial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are scientists that are claiming that you know, there are black holes that, we, that exist in the universe. If you were to pass it, there are millions of other universes that could exist. And I guess one way to look at the idea of dying and then going into a different portal, the light means we just enter a different universe that's in a different black hole. Is, is that kind of the idea roughly that we're, we're talking about? We just go into a different universe? Well, um, the thing about black holes is um, the best theory that we have of them right now tells us there's a singularity at the center. When you go through across the event horizon of a black hole, space and time reverse roles. The arrow inward is now time and the arrow points you to the singularity. What, what's really happening is that you're being the, sucked into a singularity where you're destroyed. So how, how you might, it, there, you might be able to open up wormholes there are there is some stuff going on about how you might be able to open up wormholes into other realms. I think that the the state of play in in, in black hole science is still. I mean, it's it's much more sophisticated than it was you know 100 years ago. Um, but we we don't even really know what happens at the event horizon. Whether there's a firewall at the event horizon of of black holes that burns you up when you go across. Or not. I mean, the 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 real hot shots on this are really don't don't really know. So so I'm not really proposing that kind of thing. I'm saying that that there may be just like your body, which is my icon, right? Because I'm just seeing the icon that I create. But that's I've got a portal to your consciousness. I I can do certain things and I can affect how you feel. I can affect how you think. It's truly a remarkable ability that I've got, and you've got the ability to affect me through a particular portal in your interface that you call the body of Don Hoffman, and I call the body of you know, Sean Kim. So, so using these portals, we can go back and forth. These are not black holes. These are just portals that we use in our interface that affect consciousnesses. So what I'm saying is once we understand how the Sean Kim body icon works, the Don Hoffman body icon works as portals into consciousness, once we reverse engineer those kinds of portals, or my cat body, that seems to be a portal into a consciousness. Once we reverse engineer those, then we may understand how portals work, and we may be able to create new portals. And they may be utterly New ones, holes. interesting. Does that make wow. sense? Okay. Not really, but uh, it's real. It's understanding within my realm and my pay grade. Yeah, my, um, I mean, I don't know how to do it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, have any scientists ever thought that black holes were designed to only leave, not enter? Meaning, their other side of the people, whatever the universe that is in the black hole, could potentially enter our world, so-called aliens. But we, it's it, it was the whole thing was designed so that we can never enter that side of the world, meaning that's, that is what's keeping it out. I don't know if any, not, not too many serious scientists would be thinking that it was aliens that were, um, designed. I'm sure they're not. This is my dumb, you know, fifth grade physics 
theory. <laughs> this is just to get your brain sparks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think that they're thinking that. But but I do think they have a legit. And by the way, I'm not a black hole um, scientist, so uh, you know. Yeah. So you know, we would really want to talk to the real physicists. You know, like uh, Roger Penrose, who just won the Nobel Prize this year for his his work on black holes, and and guess who uh, at UCLA who who um, helped discover the black hole at the center of our of our own galaxy. I mean, these are some of the, 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 the real experts. But my understanding of the state of play on this is that there could – some take wormholes seriously. Some take seriously the possibility of certain travel of microscopic things through wormholes. Um, I think most are skeptical that, that macroscopic objects inside human bodies can get through. Um, but – that you know, we would need new insights into space-time and new insights into the mathematics of black holes to make that kind of, of portal possible. I mean, I, I don't think anybody mm. will rule it out a priori, but it's just that given our current understanding of black holes and so forth, it's not even clear that, that you'll survive the event horizon. I mean, you, you might get burnt up at the firewall there, but if you do get through, then there are debates about whether there is a wormhole that could get the microscopic particles through or whether you get stuck halfway and die. Um, you know, maybe you can't get all the way. There's all sorts of um, debates about that that are um, beyond my knowledge right now of black hole science. Yeah. And definitely beyond my knowledge. Don, I really appreciate your time. We covered so many different things and I'm having trouble processing all of it, to be honest with you. I'm probably going to have to like rewatch this multiple times just to kind of compute the 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 information you just shared with me as i'm sure as uh, a lot of people there uh, where can people find out more about you and what are some of the exciting projects uh well i don't know if i should call it projects but the next things that you're working on uh i know you're retired now right. congrats right. Thanks. and hopefully you'll you'll have more, a lot more time to help us discover the black hole <laughs> right right well if people want to find out more i've um I've got a book for a popular audience, not a technical audience. It's called The Case Against Reality. So if you look up Hoffman, The Case Against Reality, it was published last year by um, Norton in the U.S., Penguin in the U.K. Um, and so that's a, a good introduction to the evolutionary argument that I gave and, and how it works and then also to consciousness and my ideas about Consciousness being fundamental and network of consciousness. I've got a TED Talk. Um, if you just Google Donald Hoffman TED Talk, um, it's called Do We See Reality As It Is? You can see my TED Talk on that. And if you just Google my name, there's a ton of podcasts and videos that that, that are out there. People want to see that. It's really easy. I've got a um, Twitter uh, account, at Donald D. Hoffman. Um, so if people want to follow me on Twitter, I whenever I have a new uh, videos come out or something like that, or uh, I'll post a link on Twitter. So people, if they're interested, they can follow there. And, you know, what I plan to be doing myself is very specific working on this mathematical model of conscious agents, looking at the long-term behavior, what we call the asymptotic or long-term behavior. I, I want to prove specifically that the long-term behavior of that precisely gives a map to what the physicists are finding behind space-time, things they call cosmological polytopes, amplitudehedra, sociohedra. The, the, the physicists are saying space-time is doomed. We're looking for structures behind space-time. 
I'm saying, yeah, space-time is doomed. Consciousness is way behind space-time. And if I start with consciousness, I can meet you in the middle, right? You're going from space-time backwards to these, you know, like the cosmological polytope. I want to go from consciousness forwards to the cosmological polytope. If we can meet in the middle, it's like getting the the continental railroad coming from the east coast and the west coast if we can meet, meet in the middle then we can go all the way and i would like to go all the way from consciousness through the the asymptotics of consciousness through the cosmological polytope into space and time and predict things at the large hadron collider if i can do that doesn't mean i'm right but it means at least it's worth taking seriously now it's worth studying this we we now have a a real candidate for consciousness on the table. It makes predictions that you can test at the Large Hadron Collider. Now we can try to find out where it's wrong, right? And now it's worth trying to show that this is wrong. And of course I'll be wrong. Even if I can predict the Large Hadron Collider outcomes, that doesn't mean I'm right. It, it, it just means that we need to be more clever to find out where it's wrong. And, and that, so now we do science. We just, we do precise predictions so we can figure out test those predictions, figure out where we're wrong, and revise the theory. And then we get the whole process going. So, of course, I'm wrong. And my goal is to find out as quickly as I can where I'm wrong so we can continue to to figure it out and, and revise the theory. Right. Yeah, it seems like you're just unlocking this new platform, this new frontier that allows other up-and-coming scientists and, and current scientists and researchers to be able to really stand on so that they can do these experiments and dig into the details of what you have created as a foundation, which is awesome. Right. Instead of science being near the end, it's just beginning. We're taking our first step out of the headset. So this is really good for job security for scientists. So scientists should be really grateful. We've just this opened up a whole new vista. We're taking the first step out of the headset. There's everything to explore out there. So there's lots of work. So lots of job security for scientists. If you want to go into this, by the way, learn mathematics. More math, learn mathematics, physics, and neuroscience. You got to, and computer science. You have to know all of it. This is a multidisciplinary thing. So if you if someone wants to seriously do research in this area, I won't sugarcoat it. You need to know serious mathematics. I'm not just talking calculus. I'm talking about abstract algebra. Uh, information theory, um, category theory, topos theory. You need to know some serious. You need to know serious computer science, and you should know your neuroscience backwards and forwards. That's what it, that's what it takes. So this is this is no nonsense. Hard hard work ahead. <clears throat> yeah, that's. I'm, we're just glad someone is there to do it, and someone that has the skill sets to do it. So, <laughs> Donald, thank you so much. We'll link all of your info. Below, of course, we'll hopefully get you back to get make sure that we get any updates on the latest research that you found. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys for listening. Longest episode we've ever done so far, by the way. <laughs> we usually just do 45 minutes to 60 minutes, but this is definitely worth it. So uh, thank you guys again for listening. And, and thank you, Don, for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.